Mormon Discussions and its lineup of great podcasts is about helping Latter-day Saints like you tackle deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping these podcasts alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the programs on this podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber. Or making a donation at mormondiscussions.org. Again, that's Mormon Discussions, plural with an S on the end, dot org. Donate today and support programs like Mormon Discussion, Radio Free Mormon, Mormon Awakenings, Mormon History Podcast, Marriage on a Tightrope, and others. If these programs benefit you, and you want to see these continue, please consider making an annual donation starting today. All donations are tax-exempt inside the United States, and go towards keeping the podcast alive. Mormon, Mormon Discussion, discussion and, and its lineup of great programs. Helping you navigate Mormonism one episode at a time. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful for this opportunity to sit in front of you to have a conversation. Uh, today's episode is took place two years ago. Uh, here I am. It is December 12th. This is most likely the first Mormon Discussion episode you are hearing that was actually recorded after uh, my excommunication. And uh, here we are again, December 12th. Uh, the excommunication took place on November 27th. So we're essentially two weeks removed uh, from that event. Uh, I wanted to begin giving listeners uh, a little more behind the scenes of things that have happened in this process. And so we have to go back uh, two years ago. Two years ago, I was our family was renting a home in Santa Clara, Utah. And I, I came to Southern Utah about a month before my family did. And we didn't have any kind of home lined up. Uh, it was my job to try to try to arrange that during the month that I was here before my wife and my children arrived. And the the couple that hired me, uh, and they've become really, really good friends, uh, they already had a relationship with this man who was the stake president of uh, a stake in Santa Clara, Utah. And so they introduced us to this man, the stake president, and he took us around some of the area in southern Utah, and he helped us find our home. He knew of an older couple that were renting out their home, and he, or I shouldn't even say that, they were looking, actually, they were considering selling their home, they were considering doing nothing, they were considering renting it, and this man, the stake president, went to this older couple uh, and suggested that this would be a potential uh, solution uh, to their to their wondering what to do with their home, uh, and so they saw it as uh, a little tender mercy, and extended an opportunity for us to rent this house. It was the perfect house for us. Uh, it was exactly what we needed space wise, and it was in the right budget. And if anybody knows much about Southern Utah, not that there aren't other places that are more expensive, but it is a very difficult housing market for the buyer. Homes are uh, priced higher than you would find in other places in the country. In Ohio, uh, we bought our first house, I think, for $45,000. It was a three-bedroom, one-bath. Uh, we bought our second house, I think, for $68,000. Three-bedroom, bath and a half. Uh, 
and uh, you could buy, and, and again, our houses needed some work. They were fixer-uppers, but you could buy a nice home in Ohio for eighty to 100000 Here in southern Utah, a nice home is going to cost you at a minimum uh, two hundred and twenty to two hundred and fifty grand, and so uh, being able to rent a house in Santa Clara with the right amount of space for our family in the right budget, nice home in good condition. They did a lot of work on it before we moved in, and so this stake president had helped our family, and and our family appreciated him, and we started off automatically in his stake with a uh, a friendship even though we barely knew each other. And I say all that because it plays into how all this plays out. Um, Two years ago, uh, I was at a point where I thought, like, hey, let's take a chance. I've already written Elder Holland once. He wrote me back. He calls me. You know, we email, we talk, all of that. Uh, Everyone's heard that story. So so two years ago, I decide I'm going to write the leaders of the church. I'm going to write members of the first presidency. I'm going to write uh, members of the Quorum of the Twelve. I picked out the ones that I thought were the most compassionate, the ones who I thought I would have the best chance of getting a positive answer. And then I emailed each of them separately, separately so that there wouldn't be a way for them to easily know who sent, who got the email and who didn't unless they asked each other. And I sent a letter where I think I come off very uh, reasonable, rational. I think I, I don't think I come off in any way uh, overly harsh. But it was this letter that was sent back down to this stake president uh, in Santa Clara, where this stake president tells me, he goes, the brethren have sent your letter back to me. They think you are an apostasy. Uh, they think a disciplinary council may be necessary, and they've sent it back to me to sort that out and to decide if that's the case. It was this stake president who did nothing uh, to me while I was there. Uh, he read a ton of letters from listeners that I'd gathered. Um, he was aware that I was being critical and uncomfortable to the church but saw me as also providing a safe space for people to work out uh, being able to ask questions and to explore these issues in ways that there was no safe space. And he acknowledged there was no safe space in church to do so. So today I'd like to read you that letter, and I hope you'll, you'll, you will sense um, my directness for sure, but also my my softness in ways as well. And so with that, here is the letter. Dear brethren, I write you because I'm deeply struggling with the truth claims of the church, along with hundreds of thousands of other saints. As you very well know, you have a perfect storm on your hands. I am writing to share perhaps what you're missing and offer my honest thoughts as one who sees the problems from a forest perspective rather than from within the trees. I often fear that due to your position, you likely hear from a lot of yes-men and rarely get someone being blunt. I hope you will permit such an occasion for one saint to be blunt and you take it for what it's worth. 
I share below a list of the main issues us doubters are losing faith over, why they are deeply problematic, and in the end offer what I feel could be done if you were open to suggestions. May I start with a little psychology? I am unsure how much any of you know about faith development. Not LDS faith, but faith generally. When people encounter paradoxes, there is conflict in their mind. If this happens enough times, one will relocate their authority within themselves and trust their truth over what outside authorities say whom one used to trust. The shift of location of authority is actually good and seen as progressive within the fields of cognitive development. These members essentially no longer trust the self-proclaimed experts, in other words, you. What is happening right now in Mormonism is that people are encountering limitless paradoxes and contradictions they never knew existed, and people are losing faith in the authorities and the narrative. Richard Bushman himself recently stated, quote, I think that for the church to remain strong, it has to reconstruct its narrative. The dominant narrative is not true. It can't be sustained. The church has to absorb all this new information or it will be on very shaky grounds, unquote. Please understand, I want to trust you. I want to believe my church is good. I want my church to be true. Though I have severe doubts that such is the case, such as when you don't deal with me or other doubters authentically, when you dismiss or dodge our questions, when you say that knowing is more prized than hope, when you offer no apologies for grievous institutional errors, and when you ignore the severe damage your policies are having, you cause us to lose faith in you. Add to that the perception that you do these things to keep the death grip on your authority and to maintain the status quo culture, it multiplies the hurt, pain, and distrust and betrayal. We lose faith in your goodness and struggle to see how Mormonism is any different than Scientology or a whole host of other unhealthy groups that place control of the masses above real Christ-like goodness and healthy vulnerability. Here is five brief issues in the perspective of one doubter. I also know a certainty that my issues are the issues of so many others. Number one, the LGBT issue. This is the precipice issue of our day. The world will continue to become more and more accepting as the science becomes more and more certain and the information more and more known that this is a biological issue. This is not about sexual behavior. This is about someone's identity. I sense you are all aware of the science, even if you wish to be seen as naive to it. To place so much trust in the Old Testament as literal stories that clearly define God's standards gets messy and doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Restoration scripture says little to nothing on homosexuality. Who are the celestial people in the lower two glories of the celestial kingdom? Why do we teach that post-mortal man and woman sealed are who God gives creative power when two pre-mortal men, Michael and Jehovah, are our only doctrinal example of who creates. Play hypothetical with me. Had the 78 revelation not occurred, who would join a church in 2016 that didn't allow people of color to enjoy full fellowship? The LGBT issue is on the same trajectory. 
Now ask yourselves, if you make the change 30 years from now, imagine the theological awareness all members will have about just how wrong prophets can be and so out of touch with Jesus that they entrenched on an issue that caused kids to take their lives. Black folks, pre-78, at least had acceptance within the walls of their own homes and their black family. Black folks were not taking their lives over the priesthood ban. This is exponentially greater in terms of the reconciliation members will have to make. Every member will have to come face to face with just how fallible church leaders are, just how fallible you are. This shift will be so dramatic that they will either lose faith or have to make overwhelming adjustments to their beliefs, assumptions, and expectations. Adjustments that will have them never trusting religious authorities again as their ultimate source of truth. Imagine learning that Jesus either didn't think gay suicide was big enough to deal with, to talk to you guys about it, or that you guys were so set in your ways that you weren't wanting to hear him, that decades went by and you did nothing dramatic to stop it. No one will be joining a homophobic church in 2060 in a developed country. I sense that you sense you are in a conundrum. The solution. Can I first suggest you take time to become informed on the science, and if you already are, stop pretending you are not. If you are not aware, then I suggest you stop dismissing it and take time to truly understand what homosexuality is and isn't. You do people great harm to assume you understand this issue when your predecessors assumed the same and taught egregiously false and harmful things about homosexuality and its causes. You have theological room if you are creative. Make a clear and deliberate shift as soon as possible and label it revelation. Show that Jesus cares about these kids and he has spoken. Yes, the older generation will be made extremely uncomfortable. Some will lose faith and leave. But if you do nothing, people are already leaving and you are losing the younger generation as their world is too big to maintain exclusive attitudes about people different than us when the science and lived experience don't support you. They simply won't tolerate a homophobic church and homophobic leaders. They have too much access to information to be patient as you turn the ship slowly, and they certainly won't tolerate you not turning the ship at all. The issue will not rest and will grow worse until you can find a way to equally include gays in our theology. The longer you wait, the more disruptive this will be to your authority and that of those who fill your shoes later. Make the change ASAP. The sooner you do, the more dramatic and faith-promoting it will be seen generally. This abrupt shift will be seen much more as revelation and faith-promoting than a long, drawn-out shift that has the younger generation completely checked out by the time it occurs. Dismayed at how many lives you allowed to be sacrificed in the name of your stubbornness and entrenchment. Issue number two, women in the church. Like the first issue, this issue is on a trajectory. This trajectory is softer, and hence you can take more time and shift more slowly. That said, women are being more highly valued in the world, and they are being more and more seen as equals who can contribute to society 
in the same way in the same ways men do. I won't spend much time here as your slight adjustments show that you are aware and are making the shift though too slow for many and I grant likely too fast for others. This issue will likely only reach a peaceful end if Heavenly Mother gets tenfold more visibility and conversation and women share the same priesthood or have something complementary. They should truly lead over their own organization, along with the ability and encouragement to give blessings as they once did. By the way, Heavenly Mother is an incredible doctrine that gives uniqueness and beauty to Mormonism. She could be a real tool to draw the next generation to consider Mormonism and what it brings to the table. Again, other than protecting your authority, I see little benefit to keeping her hidden. The solution? Women must be visible in leadership. They must be prized as equals in the home. They must be told a story about their eternal experience that goes beyond being in the background making spirit babies. Again, doing so will have the male leadership relinquishing some authority, but until you can make space for that, you will be giving a message full of doublespeak. Issue number three, history. The only conclusion to make once one intimately grasps the history and its context is that we have misrepresented our narrative throughout. We have so many problems with our truth claims that it becomes statistically impossible. Global flood, Tower of Babel, no longer lo- knowing who a Lamanite is, the Book of Abraham, John Taylor's 1886 revelation, Joseph Smith's deep and problematic treasure digging, polyandry, young brides, the list goes on and on and on. We have so many problems with our truth claims that it becomes statistically impossible to hold an orthodox view. As Bushman suggests, you're going to have to reconstruct the narrative. People who doubt have good reason. It is more reasonable to doubt once you know the issues in depth than it is to continue orthodox belief. Those who doubt are by far more informed on average than those who wholeheartedly believe. You see that, right? The more information you learn, the less literal this narrative can remain, and the less knowing you can maintain until eventually you realize it is likely not true, and you barely hang on with a thread of hope. You either can create safe space for such messiness, or you can entrench and hold literal ground. But if you do the latter, the church will shrink and become less mainstream and less relevant. When you get to a place where you advocate a mature and nuanced faith, then those who go through this transition will stay in spite of no longer believing literally. I, for one, no longer need the church to be true. I simply pray it can someday be good to those on the margins. Solutions? If you guys don't literally see Jesus and he doesn't literally speak to you, you have to back off imposing that belief on others. Your rhetoric has to change, and manuals have to change. If Christ does speak to you literally face-to-face, then you have to offer a reasonable approach to why you guys missed the mark so seriously for so long on really serious issues. Your silence to such tough questions is deafening. Validate there is reason to doubt and to call on people to have faith. When you validate rather than shame... You show them you are on the same team and ready to stand with them. 
and that you honor the change in their belief. Again, this shift, whether you like it or not, is positive and progressive in terms of development. Acknowledge this is messy and that folks who lose faith have good reason to do so. Honor people who don't buy it. You do acknowledge they have come to such a conclusion honestly, don't you? Emphasize the good rather than the true. To do that, the church has to be healthy and positive, even for those on the margins. You truly will have to leave the ninety and nine and seek the one. Giving it lip service while continuing to marginalize those on the fringes will be seen for what it is, hypocrisy. Stop saying you honor questions until you really show a willingness to dive into the tough questions and offer a response that doesn't dismiss them. And once you are ready to stand behind such a statement, then you will have to walk the walk and truly honor and validate the tough questions that call your very authority into question. Truth need not fear. So stop scaring people into unquestioning obedience and silence. Start taking an approach that truly values truth-seeking and encourages people to think and feel comfortable re-evaluating old beliefs and making adjustments. Encourage figurative and allegorical belief where such would be helpful. Give people space to discard stuff they can't swallow. Section 132 for many, for instance. Stop scaring people from looking online. If we are all honest, the critic has been tenfold more accurate with the facts than the church has. You come off as severely biased and scared when you show fear for what the critics say. If the Holy Ghost is good at helping us discern truth, why are we so afraid of what the critic has to say that we wish our members to simply avoid it? Do you see how you try to play it both ways? That on one hand you bear witness that the Holy Ghost will help the saints discern truth, and on the other hand you fear the saints actually wrestling with information and working to discern truth? Either the Holy Ghost can do his job, or Satan is better at deceiving than the Holy Ghost is at discerning. Joseph said Mormonism is truth. Encourage people to have the wrestle. Great faith development comes from such experiences. Number four, prophetic fallibility. You have a serious paradox when you impose that you have authority and speak for God, and on the other hand, the historical context, along with the lack of real dynamic revelation, prophesying, and seeing, shows that there is a real disconnect between how we have defined prophet and what is the reality of your role to speak for him. The bar is too high, and if permitted to be honest, you're not meeting it visually. You either have to have real revelations that draw people closer in communion with Christ, or you have to redefine what it means to be an apostle or a prophet in the church publicly so we can all have a hard reset on our assumptions and expectations. Solutions. Have us sustain the president of the church as just that, president, and drop the prophet, seer, and revelators. Unless you can substantiate the revelation, prophesying, and seeing that is going on. Even apologists admit there is little of this and argue that such is not your job anymore. You see, they move the goalpost to defend you rather than have any real evidence to support it. Don't be offended, but you guys are no Moses, Noah, or Abraham. Stop telling people you are 
in our rhetoric and our manuals. It is a definition you are not visually living up to, and unless Jesus literally appears to you and tells you things face to face, and he empowers you to do prophetic things which so far seems disconnected from reality. Teach that if God has anything to say to the church, that you are the mediums for that, but that generations may go by without any significant theological insight from God. Be blunt and admit the race ban was an error that got perpetuated. This would be a huge step to help people grow, help people wrestle with the paradox rather than add to the cognitive dissonance by avoiding a direct discussion of any tough topic. Have Sunday school manuals and lessons that encourage critical thinking and discussion of tough questions. And no, the current setup is not it. Yes, you have included the essays and the revelations in context, but as intended, the lessons really are not designed to have members really dive into the repercussions of such messiness. Give people a safe way to transition from outer authority to inner authority so you are seen as part of the solution of encouraging people to grow rather than a barrier that must be discarded in order for them to be true to themselves. When you treat this shift as bad, you run counter to truth, and this juxtaposition causes cognitive dissonance that in turn becomes a full-blown faith crisis and betrayal. If maintaining your authority is your top priority, and it appears it is, it will and already is backfiring. You should be symbolically stepping aside and pointing people to Christ. Show members that you were never the end, that you are but one tool in their life to help them towards Christ. Have your authority be one tool in their tool bag, but that their inner authority, in other words, the Holy Ghost within them, as the predominant authority and the main tool at their disposal. Give members a real and valid way to dissent and have their concerns voiced, given safe space to be addressed, and encouragement to not have to agree if their conscience says otherwise. Obviously, this needs some parameters, but currently it is a very unhealthy, unquestioning obedience atmosphere that is suffocating those saints who are trying to be authentic and stay. You can't tell people, gone are the days when a student asked an honest question and a teacher responded, don't worry about it. Gone are the days when a student raised a sincere concern, and a teacher bore his or her testimony as a response intended to avoid the issue. And yet, the very leaders at the top refuse to have conversations about tough questions, and refuse to answer such, and instead do the very things they tell teachers not to do in order to avoid the question. Once, one, once one's eyes are open to the messiness, one sees through this as a deep fear on your part to be vulnerable and to be forthright. They see through you, and they see that you are actually aware of the weakness of your own position. Finally, number five, transparency. Your predecessors did their best to keep the messy reality of Mormonism out of the eyes and ears of the general membership. You claim to desire to correct this and be transparent. The trouble is, it is obvious that your intentions are still to withhold information and to be selective on just what the majority of saints are aware of. As long as you are seen as not sincere about being transparent, no amount of saying so will rebuild trust. 
In fact, it only makes it worse. Why are we fearful of the saints learning the deeper history of treasure digging, polygamy, book of Abraham, etc.? Why do we say we honor questions and gone are the days we bear testimony or say it doesn't matter, and yet we dishonor questions by still continually dodging them and bearing testimony as a way to avoid them? Why not be transparent about the financials of the church? Why do we obfuscate truth so as to keep the masses comfortable? Let me state here, I am begging and pleading for an LDS leader at the general level to give me two hours of their time and answer the questions I have. A conversation I would love to ask in a face-to-face or voice-to-voice conversation. I fear you and I both know the church cannot ever be seen as going on record answering the questions I want to ask. I think we both know your position as a whole is so untenable that it can't afford to be on the record answering the tough questions. I would welcome someone to prove me otherwise. I stand ready to have that conversation. Solution. No matter how painful or embarrassing, open the books and share with your membership where the money is spent. Share the reality of the communication God has with you. Stop hiding behind, it is too sacred. The doubters see this as just more dismissing and dodging. What you seem to be missing is our church perpetuates a lot of unhealthy behaviors and so little evidence of God's involvement that shaming people for asking questions is no longer working as a way to deter the questions. May I conclude simply saying, people are experiencing a lot of pain. Many Latter-day Saints who used to be all in, thinking the church was true, are in the here and now barely holding on to the church being good. This number is growing daily. Any effort to dismiss them or ignore them only increases the problem exponentially. I personally have essentially let go of the truth claims, not because the history is messy, but because you're hurting those in the margins in the very here and now. In other words, I can tolerate a messy history that points to this work not being true, but I cannot stand idly by while you hurt others and do nothing, so as to maintain your authority with the uninformed masses who may not be able to handle the reality of how precarious Mormonism's truth claims are. Your predecessors certainly lost my trust and gave me a sense of betrayal. That said, I still would have endured and had continued faith. The trouble is now all the information is on the table. The excuses are worn out. You're hurting people in the very here and now and seem unable to sacrifice the power of authority others have placed in you in favor of doing what is needed to correct the hurt that you are causing. I am still here. I still go every week. I simply hang on hoping Mormonism can be good and healthy to its members. We have a long ways to go, and it will be hard work. You are going to have to risk some severe discomfort, but I have faith in you. I pray for you. I want nothing more than a church that can be seen as trying to restore that trust it has trampled on. If you knew my heart, you would know that I deeply and sincerely want Mormonism to be something worthy of my continued faith and worthy of people fighting to stay. May the Lord warm your shoulders, your friend in Christ, Bill Real. And so when I sent that letter off to the top leadership of the church, A couple of weeks went by, 
And that letter was sent down to back to my stake president. And my stake president sat down with me and uh, confronted me kindly, but confronted me that sending such letters on to top church leadership was inappropriate, that they had sent it back, that the leaders of the church thought of me as in apostasy and felt a disciplinary council may be needed. Now, do you see that? You can't suggest to these guys a problem. You can't suggest to these guys a solution. You can't suggest to these guys that they're wrong. That is the first article of faith in Mormonism, not the other ones we were given. And so this is what began the two-year process of me becoming more critical and eventually holding these men completely accountable to their own words with no deference given to them. And as the conclusion was laid out, ended up with my excommunication from the church. I hope you sense that what I asked was fair. What I asked them to consider was simply suggestions in one person's perspective, and that I tried to offer ways in which to hold on, to have faith. But the system doesn't honor questions. The system doesn't have a valid way to express concerns to have those concerns heard and addressed. The system is broken. And the truth, if it hurts the authority of these leaders and damages the narrative of the church, is an enemy. To this end, may the Lord warm your shoulders. I say that because I still believe deeply in Christ and what he stood for and what the stories about him express about how we treat others in humanity and in looking to our own personal growth. Until next time, this is Bill Real, signing off.